And so, Lord, let us embrace whatever work you bring into our lives to remind us that you are all in all. And in you alone, our satisfaction lies. And so even as we come, our Lord, to your message from heaven in your word to the church at Laodicea, through them to us, will you be our teacher? Would you give us understanding, Holy Spirit? Would you enlighten our eyes? Would you give us ears also to hear? And would you do your perfect work in us? We ask of you this ministry in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We are, of course, continuing our look at Christ's message to the church at Laodicea, the seventh of the seven churches that he addresses in Revelation chapter 2 through 3, or chapters 2 through 3. Let me begin by noting this, that deception is a terrible reality. Uh, No one wants to be deceived, and no one wants to think that they have been deceived. But the reality is, is that people are. People are deceived all the time. And the very concept of the term means that the one who is deceived does not realize that they are, but thinks they have the truth, that they're actually in the right. That's why they're deceived. Deception happens in a variety of contexts, but none is more serious and has greater consequences than spiritual deception. Spiritual deception. Because the consequences for being deceived spiritually are eternal. They are forever. However, this reality describes most of humanity. Most of humanity. The vast majority of the people on earth are deceived spiritually. Moreover, according to scripture, it describes many people within the church as well are spiritually deceived. And scripture even indicates that as the age, this particular age, comes to its end and comes to a close, that reality of spiritual deception, even among the church, will only increase, not decrease. It will become greater, not less. That is a sobering reality. And yet, there is no need for it. For truth reveals lies and exposes deception as light dispels darkness. And yet... Many walk in darkness. But God has given us the light of the truth in the embodiment of Christ and recorded in Scripture. And so the more the church recognizes and is committed to its role, as Paul told Timothy, as this pillar and support of the truth, and the more she and each individual in her is protected from deception. This is why Paul exhorted Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. As you preserve your doctrine, as you are clear on the gospel, as you are exposing lies and holding to the truth and reading scripture, then you ensure continuance and faithfulness in the gospel both for yourself, your own heart, and for those who hear you. This means then that lose then that the most loving thing we can do as Christians is to speak the truth in love. So that we would, in the words of the Apostle Paul, no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So an essential part then of genuine ministry, genuine love and genuine care for one another is to help one another guard against spiritual deception or being spiritually deceived, deceived by sin. This is also why, after using the example of 
the children of Israel wandering around in the wilderness who neglected the revelation of God and were judged to wander aimlessly and die in that wilderness. Using that as an illustration for the church, he says this in Hebrews 3, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that you will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is a, a theme that runs out through the book of Hebrews and a theme that runs out runs through Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That it is possible to be self-deceived while claiming to hold to the truth. Now, beloved, this is precisely what Jesus modeled during his earthly ministry and is doing for us this morning from heaven in his message to the church at Laodicea. He is warning us out of love for the church and care for our souls about self-deception so that he can lead us into embracing him in truth. Let me read for you just the first part of his message. I'll read verses 14 uh, down to verse 18. And then we'll look at it more closely. He says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments, though that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And that is his message in the first part, at least, to them. Now, we noted last week that at the heart of his message, and the heart of his rebuke to them, his condemnation for their sin, he chastises them and he exposes them for being lukewarm. For being lukewarm. In other words, that defined the, the nature of their spirituality and their works. In short, the likely meaning, then, is that he prefers that they were clearly for him or against him. But to be in the middle is disgusting to him. To have apathy towards the truth that produces useless works are repulsive. In fact, you could paraphrase what he says. I'll spit you out of my mouth. It makes him want to vomit. To get rid of that thing that's an irritation inside of his stomach. And at the heart of their spiritual condition is their sense of self-sufficiency and self-satisfaction in their context due to their wealth and their affluence. It produced in them an attitude of pride and self-contentment that he summarizes in this one statement reflecting their attitude. I have need of nothing. I have need of nothing. It is that kind of self-deception that comes from affluence and from wealth that has plagued many people, but even those professing as God's people and throughout the ages. In Hosea 12, 8, don't turn there, I'll read it. It says this, And Ephraim said, Surely I have become rich, I have found wealth for myself, and all my labors they will find in me no iniquity which would be sin. In other words, I'm fine, I'm good. My wealth is a 
proof of God's favor to me, of my good standing with the Creator. And indeed, in a more wicked, clearly wicked context, the Queen of Babylon, that would evil influence which is coming even at the end of the age, says she sits as queen, she needs no fear, she sits unthreatened, satisfied. And so to have this attitude is to take on the posture of rebellion to God, of darkness. And yet Jesus accuses the church here of having and falling into that very same sin. So they have then become self-deceived because of their many possessions. However, nothing could be further from the truth and the reality of the situation. It is to the spiritual reality of their condition and situation before God and before Christ that Jesus now turns. In really striking words. So if you look back at verse 17. Because you say I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and you do not know. That you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Their situation before Christ was exactly the opposite of what they assumed it was. Exactly the opposite. It was exactly the opposite of what they took great confidence in. Which was namely their blessing, their sense of security. And they were anything but. Those are really catching words. You do not know. You do not know. In other words, you are unaware. And again, that's the very nature of self-deception. That we believe something that's different than the way things actually are. It's being deceived. And he says, you do not know. You are unaware of your true condition. And this rebuke, in a sense, echoes the condemnation of Sardis. That you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Here, however, he takes it a bit further and it's because it's, a, it's more comprehensive. In his rebuke, it's more comprehensive of their spiritual emptiness, as has been noted. Even in Sardis, he says, there were a few people who have not soiled their garments. And we can assume there were some believers among Laodicea, but he doesn't acknowledge any of them. He only acknowledges the comprehensiveness of how far away they were from the reality of the gospel they professed and complained. And essentially... He's saying there is a reality about what is going on inside of you. There's a reality about your desires, the things you love, what you think, your goals, your comforts, your confidences that you are actually completely unaware of. That these things that you have rolling around inside of you that give you security are in fact not consistent with the realities of salvation, of regeneration, of the gospel, of true worship and the indwelling Holy Spirit. There's a contrast, is what he's saying. And a great problem in the church is that it does not feel and recognize its own condition outside of Christ, essentially because of its small view of God and inflated view of self. Hence the command that is found throughout Scripture, that he who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There is a coming low of ourselves before the presence of God that is the beginning of salvation. And when the church fails to understand this and sees God not as glorious and wonderful in himself so much as what he does for us. In other words, he's loved for what he does for us before he's loved for who he is in himself. 
And then that's the case. Christ is presented to us not as a Savior who reduces us or rescues us from sin to pursue holiness, but as the one who merely becomes an add-on to our lives. Again, to help us be a better us, to answer our hurts and so forth. And that's kind of where the Laodicean church found themselves and where many do today. And like the Laodicean church, sometimes our view of ourselves and God's view of us are at odds with each other. Our reality is not reality and our true condition is often more serious than we could even imagine by looking at the relative comfort of our lives. And so it was for them. In short, it's easily to become proud and self-righteous. Now this is, was noted, a very great mercy of God to give us these warnings of Scripture that are found throughout Scripture and here to the church at Laodicea. It is a great mercy of God. It is a great mercy of God to bring us low so that we might not be self-deceived, but have those qualities that form the foundation of true salvation and evangelical humility. One said this, before Jesus can offer to deliver his people, he must reveal to them their deep need for his deliverance. So the humility that Jesus is seeking to produce is necessary to become a Christian and to be assured that one is in fact a Christian. There's absolutely no gaining Christ until you're emptied of yourself. We come on his terms, not on our own terms. And it's the failure of understanding these things and to willingly accept them and to seek God as our all in all that keep people from a true knowledge of Christ. Let me give you one quote from Calvin. It kind of captures all of this. It's one of my favorite sections of his institutes. It comes at the beginning. But he captures this idea and then we'll look at it specifically. And Jesus' rebuke. Uh, He says this, and it should be up here. For as as a veritable world of miseries is to be found in mankind, and we are thereby despoiled of divine raiment, our shameful nakedness exposes a teeming horde of infamies. Each of us must then be so stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness as to attain to at least some knowledge of God. Thus... From the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more, depravity and corruption, we recognize that the true light of wisdom and sound virtue, full abundance of every good and purity of righteousness, rest in the Lord alone. To this extent, we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God. And we cannot seriously aspire to Him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. For what man in all the world would not gladly remain as he is... What man does not remain as he is, so long as he does not know himself? That is, while content with his own gifts and either ignorant or unmindful of his own misery. Accordingly, the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as it were, leads us by the hand to find him. So until we're miserable of ourselves and emptied of ourselves, we can't begin to make the first approach to God is the idea. And until we see God as He is, and ourselves in comparison, we will not have the humility and the brokenness and awareness of our sin that would lead us desperately to find everything and all of our righteousness in what He's provided in Christ. And so that is the situation here with the church at Laodicea. So in their mind, he says in verse 17, that I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing, I'm good, I'm okay. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So what was their true condition? And what is our true condition? First of all, he says you do not know that you are wretched. 
you do not know that you are wretched. In sort of Greek literature in general, this, this term has the idea of being in a deeply pitiable condition, one said. It's used to translate terms related to oppression, devastation, destruction. Uh, different, this exact term is used significantly a few other times in the New Testament. One is in the book of James. And this comes in the context of him rebuking these people for being friends with the world and having divisions among themselves because of these conflicting lusts that they have in their members. And so they commit murder, they're envious, they pray, but there's no answer because they want to take all of their prayers and the, the end of their prayers is themselves and not the glory of God. He says you have wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. He calls them adulteresses, saying we can't have, be friends with the world. If we are, we're at hostility with God. And in this kind of context, he says this, where he uses this term. In calling them to repentance, he says, Be miserable, that's our word, and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. He says the same thing again, interestingly, in the context of wealth. In chapter 5, verse 1 of James, he uses this term. Come now, you rich. Ri- Rich, weep and howl for your miseries, there's our term, which are coming upon you. In Romans 3.16, in describing humanity, he uses it again. Destruction and misery, that's our term, are in their paths. Now this is not simply admitting then that I sometimes do wrong things or that I'm not perfect. It's not merely agreeing with the doctrine of sin. He is saying here then is you do not have the real and felt experience of the reality of your own corruption in your heart before God. To have this understanding is to be able to say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 that no good thing dwells within me that is in my flesh. No good thing. And this knowledge then leads the believer naturally and unfeignedly to say with the apostle, and here's our word again, wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of this death? That was a spiritually enlightened person. That was the evidence of regeneration, of union with Christ, of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Not that he would be free from that self-acknowledgement, but that he would with the greatest clarity know it of himself. That he is wretched and he needs a savior. But they do not recognize this and many do not. That they are utterly ruined by sin. That sin corrupts and defiles every part of their being. And so if you cannot or do not in all honesty see this about yourself. Then you fall under the same condemnation of the Lord to the Laodicean church. It's not merely a message to a church back in history somewhere. It's his message to us. So, if you do not see this, if one does not see this about themselves, then there's no inward compulsion to cry out to Christ for complete forgiveness and cleansing. There may be among many in the church an occasional pang of conscience, a general sense of wrongdoing, a general sense of making mistakes or failures or whatever, but not that sense of spiritual corruption and guilt that longs for forgiveness and cleansing and reconciliation through Christ. Not the kind that would say to God, like David did in Psalm 51, be merciful to me, cleanse me, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, create in me a clean heart. He felt the depth 
of the corruption of his sin. And he knew that was him by himself, by his own nature. He needed grace. He said, in sin, my mother conceived me. And so they didn't realize that. And many, unfortunately, in the church do not. Next, he says, they are pitiable, pitiable, miserable. He says, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable. This is a really powerful word. This term comes from the family by which we get the word mercy. It's that same, same trajectory. It has the basic idea, mercy does, of showing kindness towards someone in a, in, who is suffering or in a desperate situation. The term used here focuses not on the act of mercy, but on the situation that requires mercy. So it's really, it's translated miserable because it has its emphasis on the miserable condition itself. That requires mercy from outside. It's a pitiable situation. It's used actually interestingly only one other time in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. And that's where Paul says that we are, we are the most miserable. We're the most pitiable if the resurrection is not true. If the resurrection didn't happen. It is to say then in this context, you do not realize that far from being self-sufficient, you are in a desperate and pitiable spiritual condition that needs the depth of God's mercy in Christ to help you. You don't have that sense. The mercy of God is relatively insignificant in any real sense. They do not realize that though outwardly successful, they are inwardly in a miserable and pitiable condition. And because they do not realize this and feel this about themselves, they do not cry out to God for help. They do not, with a deep sense of dependence, rely on His mercy as their only hope. Why would they? They're self-satisfied. I have need of nothing. The cry for mercy begins with the understanding of I have the greatest need for everything from God in Christ. But that's not where they were, and unfortunately many in the church. He also says that you're poor. And you could see these as two groups, but we'll just take them one at a time. You are wretched and miserable and poor. Poor. Again, in general usage, it has the idea of begging or a beggar. Uh, and it's used in a variety of ways in the translation of the Old Testament to speak of, a, of affliction, one who's, who's afflicted. It's often behind the cry of the psalmist when he talks about being afflicted in a humbled state. In a lowly state. For a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's because of the desperate need for life. And life threatening conditions. Or conditions that come through oppression. Judgment, providence and so forth. Or injustices. In the New Testament it refers to actually poor. And then metaphorically commonly. To being spiritually poor. The most well known connection is found in Jesus' explanation. Of those who are in the kingdom of God. You'll remember this one. The Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the term. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a term that speaks of the recognition of absolute spiritual poverty of an individual outside of Christ. John Stott, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, said this. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our spiritual poverty, indeed our spiritual bankruptcy before God. For we are sinners under the holy wrath of God. And deserving nothing but the judgment of God, we have nothing to offer, nothing to plead, nothing with which to buy the favor of heaven. Jesus said, that's your actual condition. That's your, that's your actual condition. So outside of the bigness of what you would see as your blessing, your actual condition is you have nothing before God. 
You are bankrupt. You are spiritually destitute. You are a beggar that needs everything from Christ. This is exactly the opposite of the church at Smyrna, by the way. In chapter 9 and verse 2, the faithful church. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. So they had actual material poverty because of their tribulation, because of their testimony of Christ. He says, but actually you are rich. You are spiritually rich. It's just the opposite at Laodicea. They have all of the entrapments of the external world and of wealth and comfort. He says, but you do not know that internally and spiritually you are bankrupt. You are in poverty. You do not recognize this. The one who has seen Christ with eyes given by the Spirit, who recognizes their poverty, sees in him all their hope and righteousness and life, and in ourselves wretchedness, misery, and poverty. And so he says, you do not know that you are wretched, that you are miserable, that you are poor, and that you are blind. Most simply, it is the inability to see, the lack of sight. While used literally, of course, in many contexts, it's a powerful spiritual metaphor, an analogy of those who are unable to perceive reality about God and reality about themselves. They just can't see it. It's like 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He's not even able to do so. It's foolishness to him. It's gibberish. It doesn't make sense. And that is a spiritually blind person. It means when they look at Christ, and examine your own heart when I say this, you do not see his holy perfections with fear and delight. You do not see sin with sorrow and frustration. You do not see God's glory in Christ as the most important thing in the world and others as the object of wrath or grace in Christ. You live with an earthly mindset and comfortably so and satisfyingly so. And yet he says you're blind You're blind to your poverty. You're blind to your nakedness. You're blind to your wretchedness. You're blind to your misery. You're blind to the reality of the gospel. You're blind to the glory of God in Christ. You're blind. You don't see it. It's the condition of all unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4.4 The God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelieving so they can't see that glory in Christ. It's spiritually blind. It's a reality that's intensely demonstrated. I'll just jump here in John chapter 9. Let me just briefly review this. This is very powerfully. Now remember in John chapter 9, if you're familiar with that chapter, Jesus healed a man born blind. He then took off. And then this man was brought before the leaders, the council of the Jews. These are the who's who of the Jewish religious leaders. And he's brought before them to give a testimony about who healed him. Who healed him? Who gave him sight? They asked him, how were your eyes opened? He said, the man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. He says, they asked him where he was. He says, I don't know. And so they brought him to the Pharisees, this 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 leading council of religious leaders. And they were upset because Jesus did this on the Sabbath day when he opened his eyes. And so there's really this incredible interchange that happens there. They were asking him in verse 15 how he received his sight. He told them. The Pharisees were saying in 16, this man is not of God because he does not keep the Sabbath. 
Others were saying, well, then how could he do this? And so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And the man said, he is a prophet. But the Jews didn't believe him that he had been blind and received sight. So they end up calling in his parents. The parents, afraid of the consequences to themselves, say, when they ask him whether he was born blind, say, ask, ask the son, ask the person himself. He's of age. They're trying to absolve themselves from any participation in the persecution that might come uh, because of this. says they were afraid of the Jews. And so a second time they called this man before him who was blind. And they said, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Implication, we want to give glory to God. We live for the glory of God. You need to give glory of God to God. And then he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said, I told you already and you did not listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? (laughs) A stinging sarcasm. And they reviled him, produced in them hatred that was stirred up to an intense level. And they said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We are, in essence, the disciples of the truth, of the revelation of God, of God's servant. We are on God's side. And we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered, well, this is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. And so since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And what did they answer? You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? And so they put him out. Later, Jesus comes and finds him, reveals himself to him. The man expresses faith in verse 38. Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus says this. For judgment I came into this world. So that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. In other words, you are utterly and fully culpable for your inability and for your refusal to acknowledge the truth that is plain and right before your eyes. Your sin has enslaved you. Your love for self rather than the love for the glory of God has enslaved you and it has made you blind. And Jesus says to this church in Laodicea, you're blind and you don't even know it. You think that you see, but you're blind. You don't see reality as it is. You don't see yourself then as wretched, pitiable, and poor and always in need of Christ. The one who has recognized their natural blindness cries to God for sight, cries to God for the grace to see and perceive. He says lastly here then that you are naked. You're naked clearly to be without clothes or covering. It can be used in the sense of complete nakedness, and it is in Scripture, in other places, or it can be even used to partially strip just down. It's the same term that's used for Peter when he had stripped down 
And when he was fishing with the disciples in John 21. Metaphorically, however, it's used by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.3 to say we don't want to be naked, but we want to be clothed. And he's speaking of that time in between death and the resurrection, the final resurrection in this intermediate state. He's saying we don't want to be disembodied spirits. Something less than what the, not dis, or not disembodied spirits, but something less than what the resurrection reality will be. In Hebrews 14, it's used to speak of full exposure before the all-seeing eyes of God. He says, before him for whom all things are naked and laid bare. And here in Revelation, it speaks of the spiritual reality of being exposed before God and your shame evident before God, your sin. He's saying you don't see that. You don't know how exposed you are. You don't know how shameful you actually are before God in your corruption. You think God's impressed with you, and he's not. You're naked before him. You're in a state of shame before him, of blindness and wretchedness and poverty. And that's the way nakedness is used often throughout Scripture. You can remember all the way back from Genesis 3. That word is, comes, comes into our attention in Revelation in the context of sin. They were naked and they were ashamed. Their hearts had been corrupted. All of a sudden, the nakedness of a husband and a wife, which was a sense of joy and connection and communion, became a means of separation and shame and vulnerability. He's saying, that's what our sin. He says, but you don't realize it. And so here's the sense. You do not know and you are unaware of your wretchedness that is exposed to God. That is your shame before him and in his sight. You're not aware of it. Now, this is Christ's evaluation of those who otherwise consider themselves, again, in need of nothing. As being rich, as being wealthy, as being secure. Utterly self-deceived. Utterly self-deceived. And while each of these descriptions has a unique quality, they also blend together to form a composite picture of the total situation of the believer of even the Christian that recognizes these truths. In fact, the more spiritually mature someone is, the more they recognize these truths. The more real it is that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked in and of themselves. And not until a person is willingly, honest, willingly to honestly see themselves in this light, to evaluate himself or herself in the light of God's truth, will you have any part in the gospel. In the life of Christ or of salvation. No matter how many good deeds, nice feelings, religious acts, or any other confident attainment that you have achieved. If one thinks within yourself, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I am a pretty good person. I may tell a little lie every now and then. Occasionally I look at pornography. I harbor some level of bitterness or jealousy or discontent towards others. But I'm here at church this morning. I try to be generally good and helpful and an honest person. And I don't know a lot about Jesus, but I don't believe in other religions either. And besides, there are a lot of bad people in this world. Surely God will not judge me. He would accept me. If those are your thoughts, then the message of Christ to Laodicea is his message to you. You do not know that you are blind, that you are wretched, that you are poor, that you are miserable, and that you need Christ completely. If that describes your inner thoughts and attitudes. If on the other hand you realize in yourself 
that you do have competing desires, that you do struggle with keeping your mind pure from lust, that you have felt and even succumbed to the temptations to lie, covet, harbor unforgiveness or bitterness. And the, but these things compel you to confess them to Christ and constantly remind you that He alone is your righteousness. To constantly appeal to Him for help to walk in the light of the truth. To constantly seek from Him the grace that would bring you to a reconciled relationship with the Father. To help you to want to honor Him from the heart. If that's the case, then the words of Jesus apply to you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. A Christian can read any list or description of the sinner in Scripture and see themselves naturally and unforcedly in that description. That marks a Christian. When you read Romans 3 and 10 and what we, uh, 10 through 20, for example, you don't think of the world out there. You recognize that's you. Naturally, not as that you have to think about it. You just know as you read that, that's me. A Christian looks at the Ten Commandments and doesn't say, well, I think I'm pretty good because I kind of keep them. They look at them and say, I've broken every one of them repeatedly. I need grace. They realize that the t- it, doesn't ma- it doesn't extend merely to external behavior, but what Jesus pressed hard and sought hard to help the people understand that it penetrates to the motive of the soul, of the very goal of every act. And a Christian knows they're guilty and they're hopeless without Christ. And a Christian knows that they're drawn to Him only by grace and say naturally and gladly what we sing, nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Now I want to press this home just even a little bit more before moving on. And next week we'll look at the call to repentance, which so wonderfully comes next. But it's important enough to dwell here a little bit more the significance of this message. First of all, because they did not realize about this about themselves, Jesus, remember, rebuked them for their works, which was a part of their failure to be a good witness for Christ. Their works were empty. And so because they did not realize this about themselves, they also could not be an effective witness for Christ. In fact, they would only, in their witness, make more people like them. Those who joined them because they didn't understand the gospel would just become like them and fall under the same condemnation that Jesus gave to the religious leaders of his day when he said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. You blind guides, you fools, you blind men, he says. You blind men, he says again in 19. And if the gospel isn't understood by a professing body of believers or a Christian, then the gospel you share is going to be as empty as the one you're holding on to, and it's going to create the same kind of empty conversion that he, can, that he accused them of here. He had the strongest condemnation for them in chapter 15. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. That's an important censure. And so this is the church of the wide path. The path is broad that leads to destruction. And that path is not a secular path and a religious path. 
atheistic or non-theistic. It's the path of religion. It's the path of religion. And there is a wide path, an easy path, a broad path that welcomes everybody with very little requirement that is the path to destruction. And if we take Christ's words seriously, then we cannot look at much of what presents itself as Christianity in the world and think that most are actually regenerate believers. The mere messages of Christ to the churches goes against that. He's speaking to the church. And so it's important that we take that seriously. Moreover, it means that the reality is not just out there, but that some among us fall into this category as well. And that's why I would appeal to you to examine your own heart. If we would think that everyone in here is truly regenerate, well, we know by experience that's not true. Two, a second point I'd want to press home. When the church becomes preoccupied with man and becomes man-centered, where she sees the existence and purpose of God in creation is ultimately and primarily for the purpose of man, that's what it means to be man-centered, in relation to all the benefits he brings to man in Christ, when that's the main focus, there is inevitably a slide into superficial, unregenerate Christianity. There will fail to be a high and a proper view of God who has as his chief end to bring glory to himself in judgment, but even more in salvation. You have experienced some, I have, I've shared stories along the way of interaction where that very idea that God acts supremely for his own glory is for those sitting in many church pews offensive. That God would actually judge because sin is that important eternally is offensive. That Christ would die substitutionarily on the cross in our place as an atonement for sin, bearing in himself the just wrath of God for our disobedience and our unrighteousness is offensive. And it would be to any church that's like Laodicea that doesn't understand of themselves that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked and who clearly understand all of those things as their only hope. The church then will fail to have a right view of man as well and will diminish or reject altogether the biblical doctrine of sin and man's ruin. And the gospel will then become little more than a place where God is the healer of all your hurts, fulfiller of all your wants, enabler of all your full potential, power for your gifts to be put on display, or in some sense the ornament we hang the structure and institution of religion on the institution of religion. It'll be little more than that. His name will be mentioned. Doctrines might be professed or not. But they have little actual reality played out in the life of the people and the direction of the people in the church. That's the reality of it. Now, I want to just end with one passage that kind of brings all of this together in many ways. And we'll turn to it in Mark chapter 10. It's also in uh, Matthew and in Luke. But we'll look at it in Mark chapter 10. It's a passage you're familiar with. And I'm going to just read the passage and, and just make a couple of comments as it relates to the message of Christ to Laodicea. Beginning in verse 17, and we'll read down to verse 27. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to them, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and and come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now what is the main point in relation to What Jesus is saying to Laodicea, to us, to the church. The main point being illustrated is this. In one sense, in in, in relation to the, the rich young ruler. He was not willing to lose everything to gain Christ. He wasn't willing. He wasn't willing to lose everything to gain Christ. And why? Why? Why was he unwilling to follow all the way through with Christ's call to true faith? to true belief, to salvation, to eternal life? Well, it comes right at the beginning. He did not understand his true condition before God. Success and wealth had diminished his view of God and sin and gave him an exalted view of himself and his works and blinded him to the reality of the condition of his soul. Do not murder. You're saying that never in your life you had bitterness or unforgiveness toward anyone? Is that what you're saying? Do not commit adultery. Are you saying as a young man you never had a lustful thought in your life? Do not steal. You've never been dishonest in any way. Honor your father and mother. Never have you been disrespectful ever. And that was the first part. That already was indicated he'd go that direction because he didn't understand the nature of God. When he said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's like, do you really understand the goodness of God? Do you really understand what it means to say that God is holy, that God is good, that God alone is good? And if God alone is good, then everybody else is bad of their own. You don't get equal goodness with God is the idea. You need it from him. You don't have it by virtue of being a Jew. You don't have it by virtue of being wealthy. You don't have it by virtue of being moral. If you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in the context of prayer, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, even when you're doing good, you're still evil. But he wasn't willing to see that. In this man's eyes, he was not wretched He was not miserable, he was not poor, he was not blind, and he was not naked. He wasn't any of those things. If he would have understood those things, he would have gladly given it all up to gain Christ and to be forgiven of his sin and reconciled to God through Christ. 
The reality is he wanted Christ as an add-on, as a part of his life, not a replacement of his life. That was the issue. He wanted eternal life. He knew something he was lacking. And he wanted to, with all of the things he already had, add this one thing that he was lacking, eternal life. And Christ said, no, no, that's not how it works. I'm not an add-on to your life. I'm not the fulfillment of the one thing you think is missing. I am your life. I am everything. And if you don't start there, and if you don't begin to own the condition of your heart, then you can have no part in me. Now, it's often noted that Jesus held before him the second half of the table of the Ten Commandments, not the first half, which is the harder part. But he really did get to the first half in his last statement to him. Because when he said you need to go and sell everything that you had, what he's really saying is what do you love? Because the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. It is to have nothing else above him. No idols, no affections, no loves, nothing above him. And so he kind of, he got to it in that way and he summarized it. And he says, you don't really love God. Really, you love your life. And you have to recognize that. And you have to be willing to lose it in order to gain me. God is God. And he alone deserves worship. He alone deserves obedience. We sang it in the hymn. You are master. Where you lead, I follow. You are the Lord. I am the slave. You command, I obey. You reveal, I believe. That's how it works. And when we've come to have eyes open to see God, that's a glorious reality. It's a wonderful reality. We embrace that. We keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Why? Because they come from the Lord of love, from the Lord of grace, from the Lord all glorious within himself. And that's what we as the church and as Christians must hold to. It's about Christ. It's not about us in the end. It's not about our goodness and the good things we do. It is about us as miserable sinners rescued from his own divine justice so that we could be worshipers of him so that the end of all that we would do would be for him and for his glory, to serve him, to listen to him. And the church needs to understand this or we're going to create Laodicean churches. That's what we're going to create. We're going to create the easy ability to get tears, the easy ability to have a moral lesson and attach Jesus to it, the easy ability to feel better about some sort of idea of how Jesus helps us, but it won't be worship in spirit and truth. It won't be from an understanding that we're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked and he is our all in all as we'll see, see next week. But that's what it must be. Christ offers mercy, grace, forgiveness, compassion, kindness, and his love in Christ to all who are emptied of themselves, miserable of themselves, gladly exchange themselves and their life in this world to gain Christ. And guess what? Here's another part. You can't come to that on your own. With men, this is impossible. And so if you find yourself even in that condition, then it is 
imperative as well that you cry out to God to help you to see it. When I say in that condition, meaning that you're blind to those realities about you. If you leave here unaffected and it's unchanged, then that's where you are. And you need to cry out to God to give you eyes to see and ears to hear so that you could follow him. And for those who do see this of themselves, you didn't come to that on your own. It was the Spirit of God who revealed it. And so we worship him and we thank him. But let us as Christians understand the reality of the situation and not adopt the mindset and the view of the world or ourselves based on our standing in the world or the culture, but it always needs to be illumined by the word of God and Scripture. And Christ and God's glory in Christ is our one message. And we don't help anybody by minimizing sin. We don't help anybody. We help them by letting them see things as they are so that they can embrace Christ and know true forgiveness and healing and peace and wholeness in Him. Well, we'll move from that to the gracious offer of repentance next week. But let me pray and then we'll close in a hymn. Father, thank you for your word. Our Lord, thank you for speaking to us from heaven. Indeed, we who know you know this to be true of ourselves. We don't have to work hard at seeing it. It's because we live with ourselves, with the Spirit of God. Because we see how easily corrupt our motives can be. Because we see how easily our affections and our loves can be moved away from you, O Christ, to other things. And we cry out to you continually for mercy. We rejoice and delight in your grace. We find great humility that you receive us every time because of your work, because of your grace, because of your righteousness. And we plead to you together that you would help us to walk in the way that is right and holy and good. We ask you to unite our hearts to fear your name because of the greatness of the forgiveness we've received in Christ. And Father, for those here who have a heart that is blind and hardened, then our prayer together is that you would give them a heart of flesh, that you would take the scales off and let them see Christ as you are, and they would not be unbelieving, but believing. And we ask these things in your matchless name. Amen.